As you know, if you've been with us last week, we just began this new series we call Grace Beyond Borders. God doesn't limit the scope of God's grace, and so we see this crazy, weird, often VBS-y kind of story that we have in our minds, but God has so much more going on than the the old childhood stories and tellings and flannel graphs, if you were part of that era of this story. Uh, Last week, we saw this picture of a pretty odd and, let's be honest, repulsive prophet. Let's be real. The story of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about God and God working even through a reluctant and at times repulsive prophet who tries to run away from the Lord is the language there. We know, and he knows, he can't run from God. But God gives him a calling and a purpose to go to a repulsive people. Go to your enemies. Go to the people that, of all the people on the face of the earth at that time, the prophet of the people of Israel would be the least likely to want to go to. And instead of going into that calling, he gets up and runs away as far as he can to this place called Tarshish, which is not just a place, as we said, it's an idea. And back in that ancient world, it was an idea of utopia. It was paradise. It was Disneyland. And he's running to his ideal. He knows he can't run from God, but he is running from God's purpose for him. And he runs into his own place. And God, in his gracious goodness, shows up all throughout chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. But he does not show up in the life of the prophet. He shows up in the life of the pagans, of the sailors, who cry out to God and give vows to God and show the humanitarian compassion of God in the story. And and we said last week, let's look for God in surprising places, among surprising people doing surprising things. We left off that chapter 1 with the scene of them reluctantly throwing him overboard and left him literally in the ocean for a while there. So let's pick up the story. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we're in Jonah, very last verse of chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Jonah 1 verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very hearts of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet... I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from the God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so many years before. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I come to the story of Jonah, especially this part of the story, we have questions, don't we? We have all sorts of questions that pop into our heads. We'll ask questions of the text. First of all, I remember growing up, what kind of fish was it? 
And we had people, oh, make sure you don't call it a whale because it doesn't say it's a whale and we don't know what that is. And how in the world can he actually live in whatever fish it was for three whole days? Other people said, well, how would he even know what it was? Does he turn around as he's thrown out at the end to see what it was? We have all these crazy questions. I love the way one writer put it when he said this. I wrote this down. I thought it was powerful. He said, those questions have no answer. To ask them is to ignore the way the story is told. I love this line. What sorts of fish people can live inside is not an interest of the Scripture. What a great point. The Bible says, I don't care. And how often is that the case where I find myself coming to the Bible, asking the Bible questions I want answers to, and the Holy Spirit said, I am thoroughly uninterested in that. Maybe you ought to ask the questions I'm asking. I was thinking about this particular text and stories like it, and what I contend to do with it, and I was reminded of this now old movie, which has come to my mind also because of uh, the rise of artificial intelligence. It's all over the place, right? So uh, this is a classic AI movie, mid-2000s uh, that this comes out, called iRobot, and, and the story opens with the scene of, of what happens in the aftermath of this scientist, Dr. Lanning, who is the creator of the preeminent AI robots of that day and age. And they're serving everywhere. And he has, let's call it, an untimely death at the beginning of the movie. And he has created these AI robots that, that live according to the three robotic laws. For those of you that are the old sci-fi nerds, you know Isaac Asimov wrote iRobot back in the day. It is not this story, but he does have the three laws of robotics, right? So you don't harm a human being. Uh, you obey human beings unless it violates the first law, and then you protect yourself as a robot unless it violates the first two laws. And, and so that's, he designs these laws, although there is, strangely enough, two mysteries. One, how does this guy die, or why is this guy dying at the beginning of the movie, and why is there this outlier robot who isn't following the three laws? And Detective Spooner, played by Will Smith, comes in to investigate the situation, wondering why he's even there, and he begins to have a conversation with a message. Remember, it's in the future, so the Dr. Lanning, who is now dead, leaves a message behind that he can interact with, but only limited, in a limited way. And that little conversation I'm going to give you here for a moment, I think, gives us a great principle for biblical interpretation. You ready for this? Put it up there, if you would. He says, Dr. Spooner says, is there something you want to tell me? And the hologram says to him, sorry, my responses are limited. You must ask the right question. Is there a problem with the three laws? No, the three laws are perfect, he says. Then why would you build a robot that can't function, sorry, that could function without them? He said the three laws will lead only to one logical outcome. What outcome? Revolution. Whose revolution? Here's the great biblical principle. That is the right question. I know this seems like a simple thing, and we'll come back and actually do more with this later when we look at the book of Mark someday, because I think it invites us to do this as well. When I come to Scripture, I think a great discipline to do is before I start looking for Bible answers, the first thing I say is, Holy Spirit, would you lead me to the right questions? Because I believe, Jesus says, if you seek, you'll find. If I come to Scripture and the Holy Spirit of God with the right questions, He will lead me to the right answers. Does that make sense? I believe in Christianity. We could do a lot with this. I won't. But we have done a lot of damage in our conversation with the world because we come to the Bible with our questions and we get our answers. Then we go fight about our answers. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit's saying, I have, I love that quote, no interest in such questions. 
So when I come to the book of Jonah and to this text in specific, what are some good questions? Let me suggest two. One is for the overall book. One is for this text itself. Here's a great question for the overall book. Who is this God? I said before, I say it again. The book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's not about a fish. It's about a God who chooses to work through his creation and through even repulsive prophets. Who is this God? God who said, if you want to know me, you've got to know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who later will say, if you want to fool me, know me at all, you know me as revealed in my son, Jesus Christ. God who says, I am known relationally in the work with my people. So when I come to a story like Jonah, I'm not looking for the hero in the biblical story uh, in the human being. I'm looking for God to reveal God's own heart. If we ask that question, we'll go to good places. Then, with this particular text and this crazy story of the great fish, here's a great question, I think, to ask, because the text does seem to care about this. What is God doing in times of great distress and great desperation? What is God up to? What is God doing when the waters are over my head? Have you been there before? Is there somebody that you love and care about in your life that feels like they're drowning right now? Is that not a Holy Spirit-inspired question? I think that's where we go with this story. So let's step into it and let's see. One of the first things that I see when I come into this story is a gift in disguise. (laughs) Perhaps a little more subtle than this one. (laughs) But it's a gift. But it's not a gift in the way that I typically think the gifts of God coming to us. In verse 17, we're going to spend most of our time actually in one verse. In verse 17, it says this. Very powerful word. It said that the Lord provided a great fish. Who swallowed Jonah? The Lord provided a great fish. Great is favorite word of the book of Jonah, by the way. Great city of Nineveh, great storm arises, great fish, sends it back to the great city. This great, mighty, terrifying fish. The Lord provided a carnivorous fish. <laughs> Here's the thing. Preachers love that word, the providence of God. The provision of God. I love to talk about how God provides for us in our finances. I love to talk about how God provides for us in our workplaces and our jobs. I love to talk about how God provides for us in our relationships. But the provision of God to take someone into a dark, cold, seemingly lonely place. Are we letting God work on us in the story already? The Lord provided Not money, not relationships. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow you up for a while. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Then I see other language in here in just that first verse. The Lord provided this fish. He graciously gave this mammoth fish who swallows him up and takes him into the belly of the fish. There's no way to sanitize that word. It's an ugly word. It's a word that means guts. It means intestines. Uh, one, uh, one, one lexicon of, of the Hebrew says, the digestive organs without specificity. How's that for a definition of the word? It's your inside stuff. The Lord God provided for him to go into the guts of a big fish. <laughs> wow, that's odd, isn't it? By the way, one of the things that you learn when you sink into the way this simple word is used, this belly, this guts word, did you know throughout the Bible... Old Testament and in the Greek equivalent in the New Testament. That word for guts is also very commonly used for the compassion of 
God. If you're a King James reader by any chance from time to time, I grew up with that, I don't read that very much anymore, but it will literally do it even offensively. <laughs> I could give you a thousand examples. My favorite one is Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul is trying to describe God's love that Paul gave God gave Paul for his church in Philippi, and he said, only God can tell you how I long for you with the, I'm going to King James it, the bowels of Jesus. How is that? What? The guts of Jesus. In the Hebrew mindset, we think this way, and it'll trip us up sometimes, the heart was not the center of the emotion for the Hebrew. The heart was the center of the will. So when you see you give your heart to God, you're giving your willingness to God. The seed of the emotion and compassion was your gut. And so Jesus comes and he sees the crowd that has not eaten and is like sheep without a shepherd, and it says he has moved in his guts for them. It's not interesting. The Lord provided this dark, cold, lonely, ugly place, and God takes him into the guts of a great fish. And somehow, the words of provision and the words of compassion are inviting us to think the unthinkable, that sometimes the gift and the grace of God is the distress. Or at least that's the beginning. Not that, oh, this bad thing is a good thing, but in the midst of it, in the belly of the distress, it is actually the beginning of the gifting of God. Historians and those who have practiced Christian spiritual formation for years have a word for this. I've mentioned it before. Let me say it again. It's called liminal spaces. Liminal spaces. Now, I don't say this cheap 50-cent word to impress you or anything like that. I think there are certain... There's certain language throughout Christian history that's really helpful for us. You can get this. You'll see purpose in things that, if you're like me in the past, I just see only frustration. By the way, this has actually become kind of a term of art in the art world. It kind of goes around a little bit. People take pictures like this. They call them liminal spaces. Liminal space is literally an in-between place in life. It's when you are not where you were listen to me, and you are not yet where you're going to be. And so liminal spaces physically are like hallways, uh, subway hub stations and all that. In fact, it's trendy in art now to take creepy liminal space pictures. What are scary places like subways at night and these weird hallways and hotel rooms and all of that. But I want you to think about this. A liminal space is a doorway. It's a threshold. It's an in-between time. You are not where you once were. Jonah is no longer in the place where we saw in 2 Kings. He's preaching the great sermons that everybody's clapping for. He is not yet where God has called him to be. He is in a liminal, in-between space. And God says, are you ready for this? Sometimes the in-between space, the belly-guts places, are actually the beginning of my grace. How is that true? One more little bit of language in verse 17, and we'll move on. Did you notice the timing? How long was he in the liminal space? Well, how long was he in this in-between threshold time? For three days, and the text goes out of its way to say, and three nights. Why the emphasis on three full days? Yes, we can rush to the New Testament, and Jesus will pick up on this as well. But all you have to do is know a little bit about the way that they spoke in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they had an expression for what they called the journey from the land of the living into the land of the dead, which they called Sheol, which is actually in the text. It might not be translated literally in yours. Can you guess how long in the ancient world the pop expression was 
for describing the journey from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Can anybody guess? Three full days. That is why, by the way, some Jewish rabbis throughout history have said Jonah didn't just almost die, he actually died. Some will say that. We don't have to go there. It may be true, maybe not. But here's the point. Jonah himself tells you, I was in the depths of Sheol. I was down to the bottom. I sunk down to the depths. I was all but gone. We talk this way in our own lives, right? Here's a silly example. I couldn't get Princess Bride out of my head. Some of you know where I'm going, right? Wesley dies, but they said, no problem. He's not dead. He's only, does anybody know? Thank you. He's mostly dead. <laughs> All right, it's silly, but in their mindset, three full days and three full nights, he's not mostly dead. He's dead. He's gone. And Jonah says, I'm gone. Or the way one commentator says, here's a way that we might kind of spill it over into modern language. We might imagine a rescue team on a mountain after an avalanche goes and they're trying to dig out a skier who is been piled under by the avalanche and they get him and he's on down to his last breath and they'll pull him out and they look to somebody else did you save him yes but he was six feet under you get the language now that might literally be in the case he might have been six feet under what they were saying is he was all but dead if we didn't get the shovel in that moment he was gone do you feel what's going on in verse 17 the grace of God said at the brink of the moment you were most underwater. I made new life possible. The gift of God. I know it's staggering to believe. But did you know those gut places, those waiting times, those liminal spaces sometimes are long, more than three days. Do we have the capacity to imagine that is actually the beginning of the grace of God. And he's taking us to a place of life that we but maybe wouldn't get to if we weren't in that in-between space. Does that make sense? Sometimes we won't leave where we were in order to get where God wants us to be until we go through the distress of the belly of the fish. Does that make sense? Okay, sometimes, I'm not saying God inflicts everything in our lives, but God is sovereign over all things in our lives. And when we are going through distress, you don't just have to wait for God to get you out. You can trust that God is in the belly with you. And that becomes the turning point in the story, does it not? The turning point of the story, I just love this about our God. The turning point of the story is the cry of a desperate heart. What does he say in verse 2? Gosh, this could be a verse just to, just to blaze onto our walls. Because you know, people come into spiritual communities all the time, and we look good, and we play it well, but there is angst going on, and sometimes we're right in the middle of the belly of the guts of it all. You know what it says in verse 2? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. That's our God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. I don't think Jonah would have made this call. We saw him in desperate straits in the first chapter, but he does not speak a word to God until he is taken into the liminal space. And it compels him to do what we'll see here in this chapter. And in the next chapter, the center of the book of Jonah is about this term that we've used in Christianity for a long time, but I want us to see it and to feel it. The term is repentant. 
But I've said this before, I will say it again and again and again. Repentance is not one moment before you come to Jesus Christ saying, yeah, I blew it in the past, and I got sins in the past, and I want to say I'm sorry for that, and give it to Jesus, and I'm done repenting, now I'm just going to follow Jesus. No, repentance, listen to me, is a directional term. God is not static. God is always moving. Jesus said, my father's always working. He's headed somewhere. Now, here's the thing. If God is going this way and I'm going over here, then what do I need to do to get back where God's going? God has to what? Turn me. That word is the word repentance. And that's what happens here in the depths of the fish. He turns, he says, towards the temple of God. Now, not literally, but he's turning to God, and God answers. Think about it this way. Jonah, at least in two different ways in the book of Jonah, in the, in the book, are going the wrong direction. We talked about one of them last time. I don't have the picture for you, but I want you to imagine it. Okay, so Jonah's hanging out right here in the Holy Land, right? And God calls him up here to go preach a warning to the people he despises. And what did Jonah do? <laughs> Goes down to the port of Joppa, and then he starts going this way. And I told you, I had to search to find a map where Tarsus was still on the map because it was so far away. He first wrong direction is he goes, the text says, away from God. Now again, we said, you don't run away. He knows he can't run from God. He's running from God's purpose. You can do that. He's running from God's calling. You can do that. He's running from God's way. You can do that. And that's what he tries to do. So the first wrong direction of Jonah, he's going away from the purpose and the calling of God. But the second one, I credit a teaching that I heard recently, and I went back, I'm like, oh, yes, this is here. Did you hear throughout the first chapter and the second chapter, there's another direction Jonah keeps going? Did anybody catch it? Down. So again, he's here. God says, I want you to go up to Nineveh, and I want you to go to preach a warning. But what he does, and it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, he went down to Joppa. Then he gets on a boat and he's sailing for Tarsus. He's out in the middle of the ocean and the waves get kicked up all over the place and the sailors are on top. I, I thought just for fun, I'm going to go do this because uh, I told Luke I would. I'm going to get in the boat. So they're in the boat and, and the waves are kicking all over the place. They're on top of the boat doing all the work they do. Does anybody remember in verse 5, chapter 1, where it says Jonah was? Literally down in the hold of the boat. And now what does it say in verse 6? He sinks, 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 sinks. And he says in verse 6, I sank Help me. I sank down to the roots of the mountain. Feel it. God is painting for us. When we move away from God's purpose and direction and passion for our lives, it isn't just a move away. It is a sinking down. And he's not a cosmic cop that's throwing lightning bolts from heaven. I know he does some of that in the story, but that's actually him disciplining and rescuing him. When we move away from God's purpose, we sink. And trust me, those of us who have tried it, you don't want to go there. And that's the picture. He's going away and away. But hear the word of the Lord. Not just here, but throughout Scripture. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and... What God could have said is, oh, you dug your own pit, literally. Why don't you stay there for a while? In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. What you get from verse 1 all the way to verse 9 is a psalm. If you notice this, but it's a prayer. 
I think it's interesting to me, Jonah has so many parallels to Jesus, I can't just do them all the time, but let me just mention one here, that both in their distress don't just quote their own prayer, they pray the Psalms. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just saying it off the top of his head, he was quoting Psalm 22. In places of distress, the people of God pray the prayers of God, and God responds. Now, I encourage you sometimes, if you love to just kind of dig into the text, take this that we read in Jonah chapter 2 and then open your Bibles and flip over there. And not now, but you can do it now if you want to. Look at Psalm 18. What you find is another king of the people of God, the greatest king before Jesus of the people of God. His name is David, and he is in distress. Because think about this, God called David and anointed him and appointed him to be the king of the people of God. And then he runs. Do you know how long it is from the time that God calls David to be king to the time that God, David actually sits on the throne of the people? Fifteen years. Do you know what I call that? Liminal space. It's in between space. It's not where you were. He's not a shepherd there anymore. He's not yet on the throne. It's an in-between time. And it is the gracious work of God to prepare him to be the king. And he is about to die in his distress and David pens Psalm 18. Do you know what he says in verse 6? Does this sound familiar? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Word for word. I don't know if Jonah is so saturated in the stories of David that it just comes out. I don't know if he's just borrowing from the Psalms. I don't know what's going on here. But it's a good one to compare to in some ways because he's praying the prayer of a guy in liminal space. Then down a couple verses later, You'll see in Psalm 18, does this sound familiar? It says in verse 16, 16, God reached down and he drew me out of deep waters. David wasn't in waters. Jonah finds this as a powerful prayer. It's a fitting prayer for him. God, isn't this beautiful? Listen to me. Jonah sank down, 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 down. David was down, 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 down. What did God do? He reached down and answered the prayer of the desperate heart. Now here's what blows me away. And I, I love this part of Jonah. And you put these two side by side. Verses 20 and following in David's Psalm and Psalm 18. I know we're doing some deep Bible study. Can we do this? Is that right? Verses 20 and following. David goes on to pray things in that prayer that Jonah could not pray. David says, I'm righteous in all this. Doesn't mean I'm perfectly holy. He's saying, I'm in the right. I'm justified in what I'm doing. David says, I'm blameless. And for three or four verses, he said, I'm in the depths of despair. And part of what's frustrating about it is I don't deserve this. You told me to be king. And Saul's the bad guy. Listen, David's distress is coming from the outside. It's an external force that's wrapping around him and sinking into the depths of the ocean. And he cries out in his distress, and God answers. By the way, exact same word of chapter 1, verse 4. The sailors cry out in their distress to God, and God answers. And they, like David, are not the guilty party. And they say, we're innocent, God, and we want to make vows and do all this stuff. We're praying to you, and God saves them. I get those two. Here's what staggers me. Jonah is not blameless. He is not righteous. He is repulsive. And the distress in Jonah's life, listen to me, is self inflicted and he says I cried out in my distress and God answered me I don't know about you but I need this story oh it's not about the fish 
It's about the God who says, even when the mess that you smell is yours, all you have to do is turn to me. And I'm there. Didn't Jesus say that? And one of the most famous stories ever told, when you're in the stink of the pig pen and you come to your senses and realize, I did this. The moment you turn, the father runs to you and says, in your distress, I will answer. I will answer. Hear me. Hear the word of the Lord. God always answers the cry of a distressed heart. Hear the word of the Lord. God always answers the cry of a distressed and desperate heart. Always. Even when it's our fault. Even when it's our fault. I'll just say this generally. I, I remember a season of my life when I ran so far away from God. I honestly, with almost every fiber of my belie- being, believed He would not take me back. I ran so far and hard from God, I thought He would not answer my prayer. There's some, some really terrifying verses about Saul in the Old Testament where he knows he's going the wrong way and he can't get out of it. And I thought, I'm Saul. I'm too far gone. And I remember days in my life where I just hung on one statement from Scripture, one statement from a human being or something of the people of God, and I banked it all on that, and I cried in my distress to God, and He answered my prayer. Hear it, people. For you in your life or the people that you most desperately care for in your life that you're hurting over, God always, always answers the cry of a desperate heart. It's the turning point of the story. It's always the turning point in the story. And here's the beautiful thing as we come to the end of that. What you see is that desperation is the doorway that opens up the door of transformation. Right? Desperation becomes the door that opens up to transformation in our lives. Jonah is changed in the story. Other people are potentially changed. People that are hearing the story even now. Now, by the way, let's not clean it up too much. Jonah doesn't get a whole lot better. This is the high point of Jonah in the story. Can I just say that? (laughs) It is the high point. It's the best he gets, and it's not all that great. But he is changed. A couple things you notice. Do you notice what he's doing at the end of the story? It's so beautiful how God tells the story. He's doing two things. First of all, he is crying out his distress for the Lord. In chapter 1, we were waiting for somebody to do it, and it wasn't Jonah, it wasn't the prophet, it wasn't the saint. Who was it that did it in chapter 1? The salty sailors, right? The pagans. What does he do at the very end of the chapter? It says, I'm renewing my vows. I'm owning my commitment to God. Who is it in chapter 1 that makes vows God? It's not the prophet. It's not the saint. Who is it? The pagan sailors, right? We're waiting on the people of God to catch up on the grace that are going on outside. And here's what's beautiful. Jonah is at least transformed. He begins his transformation. By the way, we get to the end of the book. God's not done with him. And he's got a long way to go. But he begins his transformation. He is changed. Here's what I love too. Tucked in there, verse 8, he says, Look, those who turn to worthless idols are forfeiting the hesed, steadfast, never giving up love of God that could be theirs. Here's what I love. When God answers the desperate cries in our lives, you see it here and you see it throughout the book of Psalms, the thing that happens is people can't shut up about it. 
Every time in the Psalms that God delivers somebody, the next thing they do formally, it's called a call to worship. And they don't just want to experience it themselves. They invite other people to do it too. And tucked in there, the prophet is becoming a prophet again. He says in verse 8, you know he's speaking to Israel because they're running away to stupid stuff too. And he says, look, I did it. I tried it and I sunk to the depths. And you're forfeiting the life that God intends for you. Jonah is saying to them in one line, please don't have to get swallowed in the guts of the great fish before you turn in God's direction. Isn't this beautiful? God says, I'm going to let you experience my miraculous deliverance. Why? Because God says, I know it, it never stays put. When you receive it, you can't help but to what? To then share it with other people. One little quick note and we'll wrap up. <laughs> I just got to say something about this last line. And then God vomits him up <laughs> on the beach. Let's be honest, we know this. God redeems and God delivers. Sometimes it's messy, isn't it? Sometimes it's an absolute mess. God says, I'm going to redeem an entirely broken, sinful, and rebellious world, and I'm going to do it through the blood of my son. Redemption is messy business. So if it stinks a little bit and it's hard a little bit, I get it. That's the way of God. But hear the word of the Lord. God transforms lives of people who are willing to receive the gift of desperation and then pass it on to other people. I can't help this sermon is really in honor of a friend of mine who taught me about this. I'll call him Tim. That's not his name. And he hates recognition and he hates anything public. He doesn't live here. But uh, so I, I, won't, I won't give his name, I won't give his picture. In fact, the closest thing I'll give you is a picture of somebody that, that I met through him and through his work. Her name is uh, Judge Denise Andre. And she is a judge in Tennessee who works in DUI court. So there's a phenomenal program there in uh, South Nashville. I got connected to that work because I came in, I was working as a chaplain, and our chaplaincy program worked with folks that, uh, that were here. But I love it. They give alternative sentencing to people with DUIs or other impairment-related uh, offenses, and they really want to rehabilitate people, and Judge Andre has been on the lead of this. But my friend Tim has been the centerpiece, one of the, uh, the flagship volunteers, contributors to this, the work with that uh, for years. I remember going to fundraiser. Tim introduced me to Judge Andre. It was an honor to, to meet her and all the work that she did. But Tim has been the one for years pouring out his time and his life and his money to do this. And the reason is, the reason he shares that deliverance is because he received that deliverance. He is double-digit sober in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember him telling the story one time about, I would call it a Jonah 2-7 moment. When he's sitting at the bottom of the mess in the bottom of the ocean, he said, I remember my 50th birthday. And I was in an absolute mess because not just my alcoholism, what he would tell you, he said, my bigger problem was pride and a completely self-centered life. And alcoholism just fit in. Our addictions usually fit into those kind of things. Pride and a completely self-centered life. And he said, I remember when I turned 50 years old, I was sitting alone in a hotel room. Lost his wife lost his jobs, his opportunities, lost almost everything in his life. He said, I was sitting alone in a hotel room the day I turned 50 years old. He said, I got not a single text, not a single phone call saying happy birthday. What I love is he was telling us that story on his 60th birthday. Because in the liminal spaces of those times of his life, God gave him, and he taught me these words. 
the gift of desperation. He said, I had the gift of desperation, and I cried out to God, and my life has never been the same since. And it was so powerful to me to hear on his 60th birthday, he showed us his phone, which was blowing up with people saying, happy birthday, and we love you, and thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. And then he was sitting in a room full of people celebrating his 60th birthday. He often would tell the joke. He would say something about he and his wife would be bantering and, and talking about stuff, and she would say something goofy or silly, and he would say, you, you ought to see my first wife. Because they got remarried. And they spend their lives in his retirement years pouring out the gift to other people that God gave him in his own life. His very house is a refuge for shipwrecked lives. And I think about that. If I live into this story by the power of the Holy Spirit of God and this community right here, wouldn't it be wonderful if we so take in God's promise that His grace is beyond borders and without borders and extends everywhere, if we so take that into our lives, this very place and community will become people that not only receive the grace of God, but we dispense it to other people. And this place will become even more what God has already made it to be. This place, if you hear nothing else, is a refuge for shipwrecked lives. You are welcome here. And anybody in this place is invited to cry in desperation to our God. Or some of you are here today to cry out for another person in desperation to God. Hear the word of the Lord. I cried in my distress, Lord. And you answered me. Father, that's our prayer. Sometimes we forget. I know, God, we forget sometimes. I do. I'll just speak for me. That is the body of Christ. It is the redeemed people of God. Sometimes we approach the world with superiority and judgment as if we've got it all together. No, we are always desperate. We wake up every day in the depths of despair without your son, Jesus. And every day, you answer us again and again and again. Every day, you rescue us again and again and again. Father God, I pray that we don't just receive it. Maybe I pause there for a moment. Maybe, God, there's some people here that need to receive it. I don't mean this in an old school, like, invitation way, whatever the case may be. God... There are some people in here that do not believe that you answer the distressed calls. Maybe some people are where I used to be in my life, thinking I was too far away from your voice. Holy Spirit of the living God, my words are frail. Put your words and your reality in their heart. Invite them to come back to you. And God, I pray for those of us who, who have received the gift of your Son's grace. Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, help us to be dispensers of the very grace that we live by. We pray that all for the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen.